0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Sour and Sass. I'm very excited to be here. I have Isabel Papoulias with me. And how'd I do, was I, was I okay? You did
1: well, you did not butcher my last name. Thank you.
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I've been, i like literally, I'm like 25 episodes in of going, oh crap, I didn't ask how to spell, say their last name. And we, I remember today, so it was a big moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. I want to start off with a question. When I look at your resume, you start as sales director at Mediafly. How, how the heck do you go from sales director to CMO, and what's the value of sales experience in your mind as a marketer?
1: Yeah, so how the heck do you go from one to the other? You go you go uh, overnight, literally. <laughs> it's the way we do things here at Mediafly, we move fast. Yeah there was a commitment to kickstart marketing. Uh, and uh, there was, I mean, just for transparency, they had hired someone, that person left uh, very quickly and uh, they didn't want to lose the momentum in marketing. So they asked me to step in, given my background from the agency side. And, um, and so I, I said, yes, uh, tentatively uh, asking for it to be temporary because I really liked sales. Yeah. And a uh, long story short clearly became permanent because here I am. So I became VP of marketing eventually. And then after that, CMO. So I'm a first time CMO. Uh, it's been two and a half years in the in the CMO role. And then the value of sales. Uh, I mean, heck, it's huge. It's just huge. Uh, it, I wish I had been in sales longer. Uh, yeah. I mean, in some ways. Obviously, I was, you know, account management on the agency side. You're always selling, right? Uh, but uh yeah. Uh, yeah, because look, marketing is leading more and more into sales, right? We're going deeper and deeper into the funnel and the sales motion, no question. Um, so it makes, uh, it makes the job easier,
0: um, yeah. or it's harder. Cool, so you're a certified killer and I can tell. So how do you balance that personality and that ambition and that much growth internally with then also having to lead the team around you because you grew so fast, right? Like I can imagine, right? I'm in the marketing org. There's a sales director hotshot. And next thing you know, she's my boss. How, how did you blend that when you're as driven as you are and has been as successful as you are as you've been? Because obviously they give you responsibility and then you create leverage off of that responsibility. And so they keep giving you more, but then how do you balance that with internal promotion and like working with others at the same time?
1: Uh, so you mean working with other peers, or working with my team and building with your
0: team. team and others because you were on yeah. the sales side, right? And then you're now the marketing person, and then it's like, okay, we have the salesperson leading us. Do they really get what we do? And then next thing you know, you know, you've risen. How did how did you kind of bring the team? Right,
1: right. And so yeah. you know, you have to build trust, and uh, trust comes with time. I mean, you have to show results. It doesn't happen overnight. Yep. And uh, you know, I'm sure you know too the. The internal clients are tougher than external clients sometimes or all the time, I should say.
0: 100% uh, of the time, yeah.
1: And so, you know, it's, 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 it's the quick wins. It's, first of all, it's identifying the quick wins, right? And yeah. uh, and then you start to get positive feedback. Oh, I like the website and you did this or that's a great campaign. I love what you're doing on LinkedIn. It can be very tactical, right? And then eventually, yeah. you start to of show pipeline and people are starting to pay more attention. Like, oh, yeah. you gave me good leads. Oh, okay. Now we're talking, and then you continue to build. And then at some point, I think you get permission to, to start working on the brand, which is a whole, other, <laughs> a whole other conversation. And as far as the team, leading the team and building the team, because there was no team when I started. My my predecessor had literally just hired four people, and they had just arrived, and then he left, right? So, um, And then growing that team, and that's, for me, staying very close. And I don't mean close in managing them, micromanaging them, but staying close in terms of the one-on-ones the and the, more formal quarterly check-ins and- What's your enjoy-
0: one-on-one cadence like for you? What? Weekly, bi-weekly? Are you weekly or bi-weekly on those one-on-ones?
1: I'm bi-weekly
0: one-on-one
1: with my direct reports and then I do check-ins uh, couple, every couple of months with the rest of the team, right? Down to, the, to the most junior person. And then every quarter we do formalized one-on-ones with everybody and I'm a part of those. Uh, and And the reason why those are important for me is because we we really check ourselves in terms of career development and also what I call work satisfaction. Like I actually have a chart and we rank, um, work satisfaction on different levers and it allows me to really look for the red flags, right? If, if work satisfaction is going down quarter over quarter for a certain person, then we talk about why that is and what, yeah. or how can I help, etc. uh, career growth, same thing, right? If I understand their aspirations, then I can support and create their dream job, uh, you know, over time. And uh, and so that goes
0: along yeah. with growth retention. I love that. So I've kind of some thoughts on it. It sounds like culture. Obviously, you know, you're a big believer of you know investing in the culture and turning it into a process, right? And then from that process, generating a greater output when it comes to performance. Um, does it actually work that way?
1: Yes, I think right. so. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and because because also the longer people stay, the better they get, yeah. usually, yeah. right? They, they they go deeper into their role and their grow. Uh, and I think you can see quickly, I mean, look, sometimes it hasn't been the right fit. And the way I like to handle that usually is I be, be direct on this, I don't like to fire people. Uh, I think yeah. when people don't work out, it's not because they don't smart, it's because they're not in the right situation. Uh, And so you have a conversation and and usually it's mutual. By the time you have this conversation, you have it again. You know, you start to plant the seed. I'm not really sure. Is this really the right thing for you? You know, it's not a surprise when you finally say, you know, I really think that we, you probably need to start looking for something else. And that's the way I like to do it, right? It's uh, everyone the runway to.
0: No, I love that. I'm always curious because like I believe it in practice and I know why it works. But then I also come from this high performance sports background where the person either gets in front of the goal and they score and they do that more often than everyone else. or they don't. And in business, we're like, well, maybe one day they can learn to score yeah. in sports. You just look at them and you're like, you got it or you don't. And everybody at the highest level works equally hard. And there's some people that work less hard because they're more gifted, but the best of the best are the most gifted and the hardest working yet in business. We like somehow lower our standards sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always trying to find that balance of like, how much is a performance culture and how much is a like community culture? And then how do you drive performance through both? Cause I think it's a, it's a delicate balancing act that I think every C level executive is playing is high performance team with high retention culture. And it's like the two are fighting each other sometimes. Right. And so, yeah, I'm always curious about that.
1: Yeah. And you know, I, there's definitely been times where like your gut tells you, right? Like, yeah, I don't think this is the right fit. And I also make sure I give people enough time to, to progress. And probably sometimes I've waited a little too long, but I'd rather lean towards that than lean towards you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely. I feel very strongly about that, about this.
0: Yeah. And there is, and I've done the baby bathwater thing early in my career and i moved more to the other direction later in my career. And I think there's still this middle ground that I'm still trying to figure out where, how do you find it? It's a, it's a very difficult, I think situation number one, but I I want to go to another thing here that I'm curious about, I would call um, MediaFly a challenger brand, right? You have a great product and you're challenging for more market share. Now, what I've learned is market share growth usually comes from positioning and resources and people want to beat the big guys, but they don't spend as much as the big guys, so they can't ever beat the big guys. So what's your take on this like weird little thing of people saying they want to win, but don't have the money to win?
1: My take is I need more budget. <laughs> Are you listening? I'm going to send you the podcast when it's over. Um, but you know what
0: I'm saying? Like, cause it's this weird thing. Like, cause I'm of the type of leader. If I give you a new goal, I always give you a new budget because I don't know how you hit a new goal without a new budget. And so, but I found that my clients don't do that. Right? So we have over hundred clients, mid-market enterprise SaaS. Almost all of them have at least 20 million in funding, over 100 employees. These are the big and the baddies of the game. And they all want to grow, yet all of them have these like stone age budgetary approaches to finance that don't allow for them funding. Like, let's say you had a client and they want to hit an LTV CAC greater than three and you're running your LTV CAC at six. Yet at the end of the quarter, you somehow still can't get budget. So, what's the point of the LTV CAC ratio? So like, how do you change that as CMO in the challenger brand so you're not always a challenger brand? Because is there any way to not be a challenger brand if you don't start investing more?
1: So, I mean, I, there's two things that come to mind here. One is um, you can outspend them. You can have to outsmart them. I know it's a buzzword, but it's, it also makes sense, right? So there's some things that we know we're doing better than the competition. Yeah. Our digital marketing strategy, for example, um, has worked really well for us. And we can see now that they're copying us, right? Yeah. So, uh, what's the expression? Flattery, uh, you know, when you when you do Imitation what? is of, the
0: greatest form of flattery.
1: Exactly. So there's some of that. Um, the other thing is is brand, uh, and to me that's the biggest challenge, right? So, and because brand is the long game. Um,
0: it's the quote-unquote waste of money that the board never approves.
1: Uh, and and, uh, and, and so, but it's, it's very important at some point you can outsmart. But you have to invest in the brand, right? Cause you, you need to put your name out there and you need to create experiences that are going to get noticed. Uh, and you do not, you may not be able to be always where your competitors are, but you should try to do more of that if if possible. So I think that's. I know the brand is always a challenging conversation in terms of, uh, in terms yeah. of
0: funding. I love but that, no. It is.
1: And I think that happens once you, in some ways you need to get permission for that, right? You need to, again, you bring demand, you show pipe, and then you can say, okay, now if we really need to continue to grow. You don't really
0: want to do this darn thing. We ought to start throwing some CPM money at this and start you know, running some connected TV, some video yeah. ads, yeah. creating emotion. Now it is sour and sass, Isabel.
1: Oh, that's right. All okay, right, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna start with toxic waste because that's.
0: uh Yeah, you can just stay on those. You don't have to do the warheads. They're they're hell. I'm doing because 'cause I'm out of toxic waste, and I I like the. <laughs> I'm right there with you. All right.
1: And this one is completely stuck, so you're gonna have to bear with me here for a second. Wow.
0: I know. I pre-open them because I, I have. I, I, be- I thought
1: I had to open it, but okay. Oh God. These aren't bad. So, like, just so everybody knows what I'm is this.
0: Yeah, I've got a warheads.
1: I kind of, No, the warheads are atrocious.
0: So you have a tagline called evolve selling.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yet you've not turned it into a category.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yet you said you want to outsmart the competition and I'm right there with you. But I think a lot of people do create categories as startups because then they don't have to compete on the same set of features, right? You guys have a great section called clothes in your website that talks about value selling and things like that. As a marketer, do you think this whole category creation things is a bunch of hoopla? Do you think it's valuable? Like wh- where do you sit? Because obviously category creation requires a great amount of awareness. And if you're saying you don't necessarily have enough for brand, it's hard to do category creation, right? So like, well, where do you stand on this category creation concept?
1: Hmm. Do you want the politically correct answer? Or the- <laughs> no,
0: I want the real answer. Give me the, give me the sour and
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm skeptical. I mean, to me, it's, it's a case of, with, with all due respect to folks who have been writing about category creation, and I have learned a lot from your books, but I think marketing folks, we have a tendency to use new words for all concepts um, to sound like we're coming up with something new. I mean, to me, it's all about positioning.
0: I was having yeah I was having a conversation with my wife last night and I was talking about therapies because it seems like there's adventure therapy, water therapy, horseback riding therapy. I said, "Oh my gosh, the therapists are just like marketers. We just come up they come up with their own category so they can own it and then they can market it as the leader in it and they become the leader of horseback therapy." And I'm not saying horseback therapy has no value, but it's actually the same concept actually of like creating a new therapy is like creating a new category to a certain extent, right? Like you have a unique approach to doing something. Mm-hmm. You don't want to call it the same thing as everyone else. Cause it's frankly different, but it might be able to be applied the same learnings of that to other things.
1: Right. But the thing too is, and, and you know, that's, that's where we've landed ultimately is you want to be able to talk about yourself in a way that makes sense for your target audience. Um, and so that you can really be in their consideration set too. And the reality yeah. is people think of our category as sales enablement and content management. It's not sexy, it's not as sexy as about selling. It's not as sexy as content engagement. I recognize all of this. Yeah. Um, but that those are this is the language they use. And when they're searching for those things, we want to come up and right? I was the
0: king of this, right? So here's my feedback. I was like, I wrote the like the playbook on share a search. Like, so I've been doing this for a long time. I grew directive initially by this. Essentially, if you search SEO agency, I was ranking in the top three organically. I was on every list in the top three. And what happened and where I couldn't do it anymore, because I do, I was the biggest proponent of what you're saying. And it made a, a, a lot of money. I did great it was when I raised my rates, because what I found was I was beholden to the price point associated with my category. In other words, essentially, if like your pricing in your AOV is oftentimes channel dependent. In other words, when I advertised on Clutch.co, which is like your version of G2 or Captera, mm-hmm. they would anchor my price to the two other quotes they got. So let's say I'm number three on Captera, and they talk to me and the other two players. The other two players charge 5K, 5K, but I have a 7K minimum. I wasn't able to monetize that channel anymore due to my higher price point because I was commoditized. They didn't understand what made me. They knew why I was better, but I have this saying that people don't pay more for better. They only pay more for different. And so I got stuck. Do you feel like that applies in software or is it different?
1: I think it really depends on what you're trying to do. And um,
0: and your positioning, and right? And knowing
1: your, know, know, know your audience and whether you're up market, whether you're mid market, and all of those things. I don't think there's one universal answer. But I, yeah, like, but I think there's something to um, perception, right? That goes with the price point, perception of, of yeah. leadership, and so on.
0: No, hundred percent. Like I have a thing called "perception is reality," right? I'm on the same line there. I guess you're totally right, though, because like if I was a Low average order value, high volume product, Capterra would kill for me. But if I'm a high average order value, ICP driven product, mm-hmm. Capterra is going to suck for me in a lot of areas because the vast majority of searchers don't have 100 plus seats, let's say, or whatever mm-hmm. that ICP criteria is. Um, ABM, mm-hmm. ABM was this hot thing. That I think we all got burned by to a certain extent. Like, did you do the terminus radius type thing where you like buy it and you get a ton of impressions, but then it's hard to fund it because it doesn't turn into revenue that well? Did you go through that phase? Or are you still figuring that out? Like, where do you land on ABM now?
1: Yeah, we've done um, a lot of things on ABM that have worked really, really well for us. So we work with Six Hands. Okay. Um, and it's taken us some time to get it off the ground i'll be honest and uh and optimizing and get better at it but um i would say abm and and the six sense uh, platform have been the crux of the alignment between marketing and sales ultimately wow. um and going up market and having the discussions around icb and staying really um focused on our icp um and doing what i call 360 right so it's it's we're targeting through Six Sense digitally. The SDRs are doing the outreach to the same accounts. We're creating bespoke events with those same prospects. So it's, it's a complete, like it's, I call it ABM on steroids. Yeah. Um, and the technology of ABM to so Six Sense is um, one of the underpinnings of that. But it has- Why does it work? Uh, no, Why it has does it
0: work? Why huge, does it- hugely successful for us. Why does Sixth Sense work though though? Like, like, so I'll, I'll give you my experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was running the Terminus ads same TAM, right? 3,900 accounts. I got my up on SDR team. I got my digital campaigns. I couldn't monetize Terminus like I could monetize my native stuff. In other words, my, when I just did a native upload of my account list to LinkedIn, it outperformed my Terminus because it was doing very much that GDN type stuff where I didn't have enough control and it was very much display driven. But then, as we all know, there's not a lot of engagement with that mm-hmm. display,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so I struggle. How is Six Sense different? Because I'm always, I'm curious. I haven't ever used the product myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I don't know enough about terminus necessarily, but uh, you know, the one big differentiator for Six Sense is really the data, right? It's not just the ad platform. Okay. And so, we get a lot of a lot of juice out of that.
0: More orchestration. Our entire, you're
1: our, our entire outbound is. Uh, is mostly driven by intent right we know we, we look at activity we know uh what the accounts are searching for we target the messaging based on the keywords and uh and so that's you know that's the thing now we are supplementing with google ads and so on and retargeting and uh and that works very well for us too right so i, I want to be clear it's not just six sense.
0: yeah yeah that's interesting so essentially using six Sense as like the uh the foundation, the data orchestration, the, uh, yes. the alignment, the awareness, and,
1: the and then we get traffic, right? Because of the yeah. six months targeting, we can see the improved quality of the traffic we get on the website, and then then we do look alike from there too, and we do retargeting, and eventually the inbound.
0: Well, wow. yes. no, you guys have a really strong system then, and that's has that been a large driver of your growth? Would you say that A B M? Oh approach? yeah. Uh,
1: Completely, because we were up until, frankly, two quarters ago, so six months ago, we were, you know, what I would call over-relying on inbound. I mean, it was all... The pipe was all digitally driven, right? So you'd miss
0: your AOV quarter over quarter randomly because you couldn't control the quality of order size coming in through inbound because you couldn't target it. So you didn't really have control over average order value or pipeline revenue targets because it would be sporadic.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. And so, and that was one of the big reasons why we, I pushed for the ICP conversations, right? And then through those conversations, we decided to go upmarket, which by the way, we that's our legacy. That's where we came from um, yeah. in, in in two main industries, and then we kind of strayed away from that and we went back to that. And my point was, if we want those logos, if we want enterprise and manufacturing and CPG, they are not these companies are not going to come through the website. That's not yeah. how researchers. I mean, that's that's not the motion, right? So the only way we're going to be successful is outbound. Like we're going to have to f- go find them.
0: Let's go get them. Yeah. And that's
1: why we made an investment to build outbound because we didn't have. We didn't have an outbound machine. We didn't have SDRs like our There are PDRs or schedulers, right? Like for inbound, we did not have um, prospecting, and so that's oh. now it's flipped. Now you know I would say it's 60/40, right? It's 60% outbound, in uh, 40% inbound in terms of the pipeline sources. Right. But before it was like
0: 80/20. Wow! And you did that in six months. That's really impressive, isn't it? Yeah, it's
1: about six months. I mean, it's we've all grown some gray hairs for sure. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and it's scary too you know it's there's a psychology to it which is we knew that right so you're becoming really hyper targeted and you're starting to get fewer inbounds and we're like wait should we go down market maybe we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't oh. those smbs like yeah. and then you have a discussion like no no we need to stick to our guns it's working sp is going up velocity is going all those things right and so you, you just have to watch the metrics and it's uh
0: And stay the course, right? (laughs) Half of marketing is not pivoting. It's It's ironic.
1: It's scary. But it's I love that.
0: All right. We have another sour candy we gotta do. Oh wow. This is one
1: I hate. I really like warheads. I think we're doing them in different order. I I did the toxic waste first. Which one are you doing now?
0: I'm doing warhead. I ran out of toxic waste. Okay, this is really
1: disgusting.
0: Yeah, Brian, you gotta buy me more candy, bro. This is really
1: disgusting. You want me to talk while I oh
0: my god that one's so bad. Okay. Now you do storage based pricing. I don't really ever see that. Where you're delineating between two plans, Mm -hmm. you don't show the price
1: Mm
0: -hmm. with a big differentiator at the top of your pricing scale is one gig or one terabyte versus two terabytes. Why? I'm just curious.
1: Well, now, frankly, you're taking me in the territory where I don't have a huge influence.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. I was just curious to be knew.
1: That's legacy and it's worked for us. Yeah. Um, we're also now considering some self-serve options. Okay. Uh, and, and what's worked uh, very well too, which is also on the website, I don't know if you've seen it. Is um, jumpstart what we call jumpstart packages. So lower price point for limited Land-based. users, and we get you up and running in three weeks, and it's risk free. And so those have been wow have worked very well. And then we grow, then we grow from there.
0: I love that. I think obviously the hard part of all those is if you have the outbound approach, is you have to have a long enough LTV to fund the initial acquisition cost, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why the land and expand model can sometimes. I've always struggled with on when you're heavily relying on paid ads or SDRs because you don't have your LTV CAC model it gets weird. How do you do that different in software to balance that? Because I'm curious. Like I would love to do that in my own business, but you know, directive runs off ads, really. Like we are an ad-driven agency, which is not like I think I might be the only one in the whole world. Like it's not normal. Like nobody does it this way. So like for you all being so outbound driven now, is it hard to have a land and expand model? Like out of just curiosity.
1: No, I mean that's what we're looking to do. Cut. It's uh, I can't tell you if it's hard uh, because again the outbound engine is relatively new. Yeah. Um. So I don't ha- I don't think we have a, a large enough base size to say we've done it successfully, but uh, I would say it's. Um, all the leading, leading indicators are up. So it looks I like it.
0: for us. Yeah, no, I, the only reason I ask is because like, I usually hear, it's just like you, you do things different, which I like, you know, because I normally hear like we're all inbound and that's why we do product like growth and land and expand because we have such a low acquisition cost. And you're like, no, no, we went all outbound. We did do all that other stuff you're talking about. but We're also doing land and expand. And I'm like, okay, all right, I see you. I just like interesting <laughs> to me. And Does to be clear,
1: difference? I don't think it's, you know, my team often hears me say this. I think diversity is great in life, but it's also great in business, right? Like, it, like so it shouldn't be all of one or all of the other. I don't want to end up in a place where we're like, we, we come over relying on outbound. I think it should be a mix. There's always going to be, you're going to lean in towards one more than the other. That's fine. And because of what we do and what we offer and who we're going after, I think outbound will be the predominance, but I don't want to, we're not walking away from inbound, right? So we continue to do everything we're doing. We're just adding resources on outbound. I want to have a mix. You know, I definitely, absolutely, we need to be outbound and inbound as in digital and field.
0: How do you so balance I this new... I'm right there with you. I believe the same thing, but I get my butt kicked by it. So I, maybe you haven't figured out. Like, what I mean by that is, like, I go all in on my ICP. I get really good with first-party data. I build up my TAM. I'm crushing it. Mm-hmm. And then I go look at my organic, right? So I do this, like, channel-level planning every you know, period of planning. And I'm like, it's hard to fund organic. Cause the way you fund organic is with headcount. And then you have this really long payback period. And then it's hard to create content that acquires your ICP. You can promote the content to the ICP, but now you're kind of back to outbound. So inbound has become really content marketing enablement for your outbound. If that makes sense. Like how do you keep investing in inbound while still narrowing your ICP? That's a hard question for me.
1: So how do I, we keep investing on inbound while, while focusing on our ICP?
0: Yeah, because it's hard, right? It's, because the more you drill down your ICP, the less they search it. What I mean by that is like there's 10,000 people that search SEO agency. Mm-hmm. There's 100 people who search SEO agency for SaaS. So you have two options. You try to rank for SEO agency and serve 5% of total queries, or you try to rank for SaaS SEO agency and serve 100% of queries, but you can't scale it because you're kind of stuck.
1: Right. I mean, we, there's always going to be some waste. I think, I guess maybe that's the answer, right? So there's also yeah. going to be some waste on the inbound and,
0: yep.
1: and we're okay with that.
0: Yeah. Cause it says a little acquisition we're cost. We're okay with it. I like where your head's at. Yeah. I'm just curious. Cause it's like, these are the little things I play in my head are like the, the hypotheses of channels and logic and then trying to match them to my strategy. It gets difficult with this game that we're trying to do as marketers which is inbound and outbound and the blended customer acquisition cost right now you're doing something really cool and i want to hear how you did it because I've, I've actually i don't know how to do this you've integrated three different acquisitions at mediafly mm-hmm. i can see it as a ceo but i'd like to see it more from a cmo perspective because you're the one who act ceo we get to sit there Give a big speech, everybody claps for us. Sign, we seem sign the visionary.
1: sign the. And then you all
0: have to do it, right? So, um, like, I get to be like, "Wow, look at me! I'm brilliant. I just got EBITDA arbitrage. I use my capital wisely. The board's clapping for me. Everybody loves me." And then you got to pick up the pieces, right? So, as the CMO, picking up the pieces is so true. I know. Like, wh- how do you integrate them? Like. Like, what do you do? Like, what's that? Like, let's say, what's the five steps of integrating a company to your marketing post-acquisition?
1: Cool. I love the question because, yeah, that's been a big part of my life, and I and I I couldn't have said it better. I mean, I joke with Carson about this all the time. Like, if we if we do one more acquisition, you're going to kill me because so much falls on marketing. I mean, it falls on everybody ultimately. Right? Products. Hello. steps yeah. um, <laughs> And I've learned I've learned some things from that for sure. Yeah. Uh, and I, I talk about that a lot, right? So so the the biggest learning is really, and I actually heard this from a former board member, and he said to me, you make the announcement, obviously, you have to prep, and a lot of that falls on your shoulders, right? You need to understand the strategy. What are we doing? What we are we doing? Why, why are we acquiring this company? And then be able to translate it to the outside world. But then... Just because the announcement and the deal is made and the announcement is made doesn't mean you've actually merged. And it takes time to do that, and don't rush through it, right? Yeah. So the, there's and there's a process, right? And and, the, and we go through the same process every time. And you know I'll skip a lot of the details, but there's work streams that I build, right? And so there's the the common messaging work stream, which means that you need to do an audit of the content and merge the two websites and so on. And then there's a, an ops te- um, work stream, which is around tech stack, right? And their and, and vendors, are they using agencies? Do we have agencies? There's a duplication, all those things. And then so, you know, there's three or four work streams like that, I assign leaders to each of the work streams and we have a plan, you know, and, and we go from there to execute. Um, but I would say really the biggest thing is Three big learnings, right? One is don't rush through it. In other words, don't rush to merge. Yeah. No, don't. There's no need for that, right? So they'll have their website for a while. We have ours. They'll have their tech stack for a while. It's all good, right? They'll have their brand. We'll have ours.
0: Uh, merge too early, and you don't monetize the acquisition, right? The other, you, you, yeah. But
1: that's the other thing. And, and actually, which leads me to my next point, uh, which is check your own biases, right? And just because in many acquisitions, you might be the bigger company or the bigger brand, it doesn't mean you actually need to absorb the other brand completely. And to be honest, we made that mistake. We made it with our first acquisition at Linian, which is our value selling tools. In hindsight, and hindsight, is always of 2020. Yeah, we were the bigger brand, but what we underestimated was they were a very, very niche product and a very niche brand. And within that niche, they were a leader
0: they're are big and bad.
1: When we when we turned off their brand and I was running into ours, we lost a lot of the awareness. And
0: yep.
1: well, we're very proud of ourselves because we actually did rush despite the advice I received. Like in three months, we merged a lot of the components. The, the like like, a lot. like <laughs> and we're like yeah, we're amazing, <laughs> we're amazing. And then we're like a year later, we're like, well, so. So that's number two. Check your own biases, right? Just because you're yeah. incoming and you're absorbing them doesn't mean that you're bigger and you're better necessarily. Right? So, so check all of that. And then the third, third um, learning that I feel very strongly about is what I call mind the people. And mind the people on both sides because you're ultimately bringing two large groups of people together. And it's freaking scary. Yeah. First of all, it's completely disruptive, let's be honest. Yeah. Acquisitions are disruptive. There's no anxiety way to... anxiety is
0: running high. Everybody thinks they're going to be fired. Exactly Nobody's right. sure. It's
1: disruptive yep. in many ways. It's disruptive because you have to do your regular job. Plus, now you have to you know, pull in another company. But uh, psychologically, it's disruptive because the people coming in are really scared. And the people that are already here are also scared because they don't know how that's going to impact their lives. And so the... Completely transparent communication. And this is very much coming from Carson, our CEO, right? Like we talk about the acquisition way before it happens, even which I know is not necessarily best practice. Yeah. We don't hide anything. And then regular check-ins back to those one-on-ones and then, then they become weekly with everybody on, on my, I'm gonna speak for my team, my team on my team, but the folks that are not gonna be joining my team too. How are you doing? Let me talk to you about how I'm thinking about your role. What do you want to be doing? Where do you see your career going? Like That exchange is the most important thing. Forget about everything I said before. Don't rush. Yeah. All those things. If you only do one thing, is mind the people. And I, I remind my team that's already here that whatever trepidation you have, empathy, right? The other side has it 20 times more than we do.
0: Yeah, 100%. So I know. You got I'm getting very
1: passionate about this, but it's um, for me, it's huge.
0: I love it, Isabel. This has been amazing. I want to end on one last question. We're out of time. How many hours a week do you work? I want to help uh, people who – I think there's this perception in young people that they need work-life balance, but they also want to be super successful. Um, out of curiosity, how many hours do you work?
1: It varies. Right. I mean, honestly, it varies. I, I don't know. There's probably – weeks where I work, I don't know what the, the math is, like 70 hours a week. You know, like I'll work late on weekdays and then Sunday will be a work day. But there's weeks where it doesn't happen and I'm I'm more towards the weeks that it doesn't happen. And I
0: yeah. I
1: feel like I've always had mostly work-life balance, primarily because, you know, I have a professional hobby, which is dance. I've danced all my yeah. life, also teach dance. And I think the way you get to work-life balance is always by having something you love doing outside of work. When you have that, yeah. you will stop working.
0: I love that. That's been my- I love
1: it. Principle. I want to ask
0: that though, because you're a CMO and a lot of people want to be a CMO and they think they can get there by working their 40 hours and hanging out with all their friends all day. And I think they forget that it's a competition and that anyone in the world can decide to be a CMO actually. If they're smart enough and work hard enough. And so you got to outwork everybody too. So I love that answer. It was very fun chatting with you, Isabel. Thank you so much for being on the show. And if anyone wants to follow along with your journey, what's the best way for them LinkedIn. to do LinkedIn.
1: Definitely LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. We'll follow yeah. Isabel on LinkedIn, everybody. And uh, thanks for being on the show. That's and Sass. Bye, everybody.